Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. Super special guest today, who we have a common bestie, I guess would be the word. Plus, she is a a legend. If not in my mind, then in hers. Please welcome Susie Esman. Hi. You know, I have to tell you something. The first time I met your mother, I said something to that effect that she was a legend. She bit my fucking head off. <laughs> she bit my head off. <laughs> she hated that. I know. Apparently she did. I said the wrong thing. Yeah. Well, that's like they always say, if you get a stand... It made stand- her feel old, I think, you know. But also, you know the story that if you get a standing ovation at the Academy Awards... Call your doctor immediately because yeah. you're probably dying. Exactly. <laughs> it's always such a or you're never going to work again. What or you're never going to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I want to go back to the beginning with you. All you right. were born in the Bronx. Yeah. You grew up in New York City. No, no, How I you- grew up in Westchester. Oh, again, like my mother. And with a, doc- a father who was a doctor, again, like your mother. Where in where in Westchester? She was in Tony Larchmont. We grew up in Mount Vernon, which was, you know, it's still nice. Yeah, it was nice, but it was it was not as Tony as Larchmont, where my well, parents eventually moved, by the way. So there you go. Yeah. How do you think being and people always ask my mom this such a New Yorker has a has has helped create your comedy? Well, you know. I've lived in Manhattan for since 1977, a really long time. <laughs> I think. Are you I, wait? Are you in rent control? No, I, oh. I, I had rent stabilized illegal two illegal rent stabilized apartments, one for nine years, one for 14 years. And then I got caught and then I had to buy. So but then that that made me miss the good buying opportunity. Real is everything revolves around real estate. Every conversation I have with anybody goes back to real estate. Well, um, because in New York, if you're in rent control, oh, yeah. people, people, what you, they have to carry them out feet first. Right. However, I would have been in a really crappy apartment at this point. And, you know, yeah. they're not the greatest. Sometimes they're great apartments. Um, you know, I, I, th- this is a generalization, but growing up in New York and coming up in comedy in New York, because that's where I started. And that's, I've never left New York. I never moved to L.A., um, I found that a lot of comedians that moved to L.A. lost their edge in a certain way, because in New York, no matter how much money you have, no matter who you are, unless you're, you know, the the succession family, um, you're dealing with the elements all the time. You're dealing with all different different people all the time. You're dealing with with different ethnicities, different socioeconomic uh, stratus. And in L.A., you don't really see that. You're in your car, you're out of your car, you live in your neighborhood. And and that's about it. And I found that a lot of comics I know that moved lost their edge because they weren't constantly dealing with the elements. 
That's that's that's, the other thing is New York is a visual feast. Yes. Yes. What you you see walking down the streets. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my favorite is always when you see the long, beautiful hair and then the person turns around and they're 80. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and still thin and in heels. And they have the lipstick like this. Oh, yeah. Above their lips. But at least they made the effort. I love those old ladies. They made the effort, you know? Well, there's such an interesting, like, a phenomenon that I find is everyone thinks I grew up in New York when I grew up in L.A. And I really believe it's a sensibility. It's a sensibility, but it's also your mother was such a New Yorker. Yeah, and and but she Im- imbued you with that sensibility. You think? Um, <laughs> so coming up in comedy, it which I which I didn't know, which Larry told me, you and Joy Bear came up together, and you're still best friends. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we came up together. I met her. We started in 1983, um, and we met at a place called Comedy U, which was on University and. 13th Street. And they had these Thursday night, they had women comedian nights, you know, because when when we were coming up, they wouldn't put two women on a bill together. No Every night in all these showcase clubs, Catch a Rising Star and the Improv and Comic Strip, they would have a lineup and it would be man, 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 man. And they put one woman on because I they thought we were both going to talk about our periods or something. I don't know what the fuck. Whereas one male comic after another talked about masturbation, but that was OK. You know, right. So there was this one club that had an all-female night, and that's where we met. Which is great. And all these years, and I adore Joy. Oh, she's the best. And I just, she doesn't take any. She was a huge influence on me also because, I mean, I was 28. She was 41. She's, you know, she's older than me. And she had already had this life. She started late. She started when she was 40. And she had already had a kid and a life and a husband and a divorce and, I remember seeing her on stage for the first time and thinking, because I used to just do these characters. I didn't know how to speak in my own voice. And I I saw Joy for the first time and I remember thinking, oh, she's just on stage like she is how I am around the kitchen table talking to my girlfriends. And it was like, ding, ding, ding. I realized how to develop a comedic persona that I already had, but how to take that and put it on stage. And then she was always so supportive and she taught me not to be competitive with women, which was a major thing too. Oh, huge. Yeah. Huge thing. It's interesting what you just said about finding your own voice, which is so difficult, I think, especially for women comedians. I think it's the hardest thing about stand-up is finding your voice. How did you get the confidence to suddenly say, I can be who I am, but maybe an elevated version? Because that's scary. You know, I mean, it's always an elevated version. Right. You're on stage, you're performing, you know. Right. Um, I didn't have the confidence. In the beginning, I think I was just stupid. I didn't realize how scary and and, uh, ridiculously difficult this whole process was. So I just did it. And then, um, you know, I mean, doing stand-up, you either have to do it or you don't. Young comedians come up to me all the time, advice. If you don't have to do it, go do something else because it is not easy and it's very difficult. And we all know extremely talented people who have not been that successful. I mean, it's, there's no given that just that you're talented, you're going you're gonna to make it, even if you have the tenacity. You know, there's luck. There's so many. I always think it's talent, tenacity, and luck is, is the tr- trifecta. Um, 
but I, you know, I, I, ha- I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. I so needed to get up on stage. I got addicted once I started to making people laugh. You get addicted to killing, which is also a dangerous thing because you, you know, you could rest on your laurels and not really push yourself sometimes and just, you know, go, go back to the, the tried and true. So that's a struggle you always have. But there, I, I, I can't even think that there's anything in the world like being on stage as a comic. You're not with anybody else. You're not, there's no musicians behind you. It's all you. It's a power that's singular. Well, I always say it because it's a conversation. And yeah. it's like the best conversation. Right. If you're doing it right, it's a conversation. Yeah. I mean, everyone's had nights where they've bombed. I have a childhood memory of something being so bad. I think they were, my my mom was in the Catskills and my dad was driving and my mother got into the back seat and put a blanket over her so they could get out without anyone seeing her. Those were tough audiences, the Catskills. Those yeah. audiences, and I came towards the end of that, you know, when, when it was all kind of falling apart. But those audiences were like, they'd seen everybody. They see everything all these years from Alan King to Joan Rivers to Jackie May, whoever it was. And they were judgmental. It was a lot of, hmm, that's funny. Yeah, exactly. Not actually laughing. And they were not going to give it up even worse if you were Jewish. Oh, yeah. You know, and a Jewish woman, especially, I think it was it was even harder. Do you remember your the night you bombed the most? I mean, my mother could rattle off to this to the very end. She could say it was 1976 and I was in Des Moines, like really could. I will tell you the worst audience I ever had was in Borough Park, Brooklyn, Hasidim. Oh, well, they're not a big laughers anyway. But they were not laughing at a Jewish woman. I was of everything about me offended them. And I took every trick out of the book. I could, and there was no women. It was all men. Because the women, you know, they're home making babka, whatever the hell. And, and children. And children. And I could not get a laugh for anything. For nothing. And I knew it was going to be like that going in. And the booker who was Italian was like, oh, you'll kill. It's the Jewish audience. I was like, no, you don't understand. These are different kinds of Jews. <laughs> but also, I was like, who booked that? Yeah, <laughs> That's hilarious. That's a tough audience. Oh, that was horrible. It was horrible. And then once another horrible gig I did, it was at a bat mitzvah. And the little bratty 13-year-old kids were throwing hard candy. There was candy on this table. Throwing hard candy at me, those little shits. Again, it's just like, who booked that? Because my mom used to do, and I hate to be talking about her, but all those, and every nobody knows that performers do all these private gigs. Especially the beginning. All the time. And also when you're huge. Yeah, yeah. Because then you make the real money. Right. But they're always difficult. They're always difficult. Um, sometimes they're easier because it, it's a, it's a homogeneous group and you just play to their narcissism. Mm-hmm. You know, they all know each other. So I would do these country clubs all through the tri-state area and I would find out who's the president of the club, you know, then you go where, or there's Morris in the front row or whatever, and they all know who it is. So you're working them and, and riffing with them and they're hysterical because it's all about them. So in that sense, it was easy. But yeah, especially in the beginning, I mean, you have to do every, first of all, those gigs pay. You weren't, we weren't making money at the clubs. They gave us what was called cab fare, which was $7 a night. Couldn't even cover a cab these days. Right. Um, 
doesn't even cover the Crosstown bus, I don't think. But um, those gigs were money gigs. And you learn from those gigs. Going out to New Jersey and standing up on a bar and having to make the, these yahoos laugh and they're just screaming, show me your tits, you know, stuff <laughs> like that. I mean, you learn from that. You learn how to become a strong comic from all those things. My mom was a, was a, was an anniversary gift a lot. Yeah. yeah. She was yeah. always the surprise for the wife who without fail would come up and say, they all say I look like you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, well, that's, ah! that's a really hard one when you have to go into people's homes. I've done that. You have to go into their living room and perform. Those are really, really hard. I want to move on though, because did you, uh, was acting always the end goal or like my mom, she wanted to be an actress and then found comedy. Yeah, me too. I wanted to be an actress and then found stand-up. I never thought of being a stand-up comic. Uh, You know, it just wasn't, I thought of being like a a Carol Burnett, you know, like a a sketch comedian. Um, Stand-up was, uh, you have to write material and and no, no, that was way too over my head. But once I started doing it, 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 after a few months of doing it, I was like, uh, this is what I was born to do. This is what I was supposed to do. But your first big break was in Crocodile, Dundee, not one, two. but two. Yeah, I wouldn't call that a break. I would call that, <laughs> I would call that a day job that I got. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't exactly a break. But did that lead to so much more? Yeah. That's why it wasn't. It didn't do anything. No. It was the first time I think I got residuals. And I was like, oh, they keep on sending me a check for $4.32. What a delight. So so how did the acting begin to take over? Where, what was, because, you know, people say, oh, they've come out of nowhere. But for most people, it's a very slow roll. Correct. And, And which is actually, in retrospect, a better way to go. You know, you don't want to be a child star and you don't want to hit too young. Even as a comedian, you know, people who hit too young, they didn't have the chops later on. Um, I was, I, I, I guess in 1987, I was cast in a series that only ran for 13 episodes called That's Baby a lot Girl. now, by the way. Yeah, yeah, in those days, we didn't have any cable, um, no streaming. Uh, it was based on the movie Baby Boom and I played Kate Jackson's secretary, um, so I got that and that, and then I got, you know, a few parts here and there, but I wouldn't say, I would say my big break was Curb in 2000. So I had already been doing this for what, 30, uh, 23 years, right? 83, 93. Yeah. Whatever. And 18, Curb, 18 years, whatever. And Curb's the gift that keeps on giving. Melissa, season 11. It's insane. And it's as insane. good as ever. How did, how did how did you get the job on Curb? Well, that's an interesting question because that goes back to my whole theory of career. Right. Which is, you know, I mean, please, you, 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 you're at the clubs every night. You see this one getting this development deal and this little blonde Gaisha cup getting that. And, but, but, you know, and it's like you start to really feel like nothing's ever going to happen for me. And, um, and, and I, I did my math wrong. So if I started 83, I got a 2000. That's 17 years I've been doing it. My whole thing was always you keep showing up and showing up and showing up and do good work and don't even think about what anybody else is doing, except that I wasn't making any money. That was the issue. You know, I mean, that, nobody supported me. I needed to make more money. 
So for the Friars Club, I kept showing up. They would do all these benefits, and you really had to make your bones there because it was all these old starker comedians, Alan King and, you know, all these guys who did not think women were funny. And as as Jerry Lewis infamously oh, said. He's the worst. He was the, the worst. worst. Jerry Lewis said, I can't even look at a woman on stage knowing she's a mother. It turns my stomach. Yeah. not yeah. He is not a popular man amongst women comedians. That's right. We dislike him. Um, disliked him. Yes. Um, so fr- they were doing a roast, 1999, they were doing a roast of Jerry Stiller and it was going to air on Comedy Central. And the Friars Club, because I had done so much for them and I had proved myself, I did had done roast for them before for Danny Aiello, for this one, that one, and had done really, I do my homework. Yeah. To really prepare for. Y- your mom was, I mean, these guys sometimes they get up, you have to be so much better to be a woman which is fine with me. I don't want to be mediocre anyway. I want to be that much better. But these guys would get up unprepared. No, never on something Mm -hmm. like that are you unprepared. Larry actually helped me. Larry Amaros helped me on that roast, write some material. Um, I think one of the lines I had on that roast was there was, I was talking to the dais. This is a Larry line and you'll recognize it because it's such a Larry line. Maury Povich is there. I said, Maury, we all wonder why you married Connie Chung. But then I realized Jews always love to eat Chinese. (laughs) that's a larry line that is so well and my one of my favorite larry lines was i was my mom was being inducted into the television academy hall of fame and we wrote my my speech as a letter and Uh i wrote my first line was melissa dear melissa if you're reading this i am dead right and Larry then went on, we was like what else could she be could this be a like a, a form letter for and of course it was uh the Stanley Cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's such a hockey fan. fan. So, yes. <laughs> and it was like, it was like, um, I've written this letter in case I win anything, you know, after I'm dead. So I'd like to thank the Television Academy, the NHL. Wow, that Stanley Cup is finally yeah, mine. We went through everything. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. He's the funniest man alive. But anyway, so it's 1999 and, and Comedy Central didn't want me on the roast. For some reason. Of course not. I was too old, too female, too Jewish, too whatever. And the Friars Club fought for me to be on that roast. And it was my understanding that they allowed me to be on that roast. And they paid. They paid decent money. And I wanted that job. Um, But they they figured they'd cut me out. Well, roasts are really, really hard. You're in this big grand ballroom with high, high ceilings. And the laughs go "Ah," up into the air. And and you need to go on early because otherwise everybody's done what you already wanted to do. And they're just real. They're, they're a tough audience. So I worked really hard on that roast. I got laryngitis. I was such a nervous wreck. I lost my voice completely. I was taking steroids. I grew a penis, whatever. <laughs> and um, I killed. I killed. And they left me in because very few people. Jeffrey Ross did really well at that roast. He's the roast master. And I did. And nobody else really did that great. And Larry who I had known but hadn't seen in 10 years because he had moved to L.A. I knew him in 19 mid-80s from Catch a Rising Star, saw the roast. And he called me up and he gave me the part. So it's all like, you know, showing up, showing, 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 and then just keep on doing it. And one day, Larry David calls you and gives you the part. But even back then, Melissa, I was a day player. Really? Oh, yeah. For the first three seasons. Which is hard to believe because you are so part of the DNA of the show. 
Yes, however, season two, I was only in two episodes. Season one, I was in three episodes. Season two, they were great episodes. Season two, it was the doll and, and, you know, and then little by little, but I wasn't, I didn't have a contract until season eight. Are you kidding me? Wow. That had to, that had to, that had to hurt. Yeah, it was not, it was hard. That was hard. But, you know, Larry, I mean- so much good came from doing that show. Then I started doing so much more stand-up, right. so many more personal appearances and getting paid so much more money. And, you know, it was all worthwhile. Right. And, of course, he, he gave me such funny stuff to do. I mean, who gives you that kind of funny stuff to do? Nobody. How – I mean, people don't know how are – I mean, I know, so, but I'm going to let you tell it. How the episodes and the scripts are structured. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a traditional script. We have an outline. So there's no dialogue written. There's an outline that'll say, you know, exactly what has to happen in the scene. And then we completely improvise the scene. The only Sometimes there might be a, a piece of dialogue that's necessary for story point for some reason. But other than that, nothing's written. It's completely improvised, which is, for me as a comic, the most fun way to work. I'm not lying in bed the night before, memorizing my lines, feeling anxiety, show up, scream, yell, tell everybody to go fuck themselves. They give me money. I go home. It's the most fun thing I ever did. (laughs) Do you, because you talk about being a preparer. When you know what the story beats are going to be, you have to be sitting at home thinking about what you're going to say, writing notes of funny lines ahead of time. Well, actually, I'm really not because that's exactly what, Larry doesn't want. He doesn't give any of the guest stars the outlines. I see the outlines ahead of time um, because he doesn't want them preparing lines, which then becomes a bad sitcom. Right. You know, then it just becomes sitcom lines as opposed to, you know, improv. It's all about talking and listening, talking and listening and never denying what the other person is saying. So I don't prepare lines ahead of time ever. I'll think about it. I'll I'll just, I'll lie in bed and I'll think about what scenes do I have to do tomorrow? Oh, the one where we make a toast. And But I'm not thinking about lines. I'm thinking about what happened before. It's more of an acting job. What happened before? Where, what's the relationship is this season? What's, you know, that kind of a thing. But if you're preparing the lines, it, it, he'll know immediately and he'll stop you. Do you guys run the scene a little bit beforehand? So you have- Absolutely do not do that. What really? We, yeah. What we do is we'll do a camera block and we keep our mouths shut. We don't say anything about what we're planning on saying in the scene. And when they say action is the first time we speak and start the scene. Now, sometimes we find the scene right away. More often than not, it takes us six, seven, eight takes to find the scene. And then we say, okay, that's the scene. And what a phenomenal we- group of actors to be able to have that kind of talent. I don't think people understand a, how fun it is, but B, how hard it is. Well, we're writing it. Yeah, as right. you go. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, everybody just thinks we are exactly like our characters, and none of us are, you know, uh, Richard Lewis. But well, <laughs> Richard Lewis has been the same Richard Lewis forever. Yeah, <laughs> and by the way, like, yeah. just being in a room with Li- Richard Lewis is hilarious because oh, you're that. waiting for him to be a different person and he's not. No, he's not. He's not a different person. No. He's very consistent. <laughs> he's the best. I love him so much. I just oh, love him. 
He is hilarious. What's what what's was the, it like for you growing up with all these comedians around all the time? There weren't a lot of comedians around. No? My parents lived very different lives outside of work. Now, mm-hmm. did I know Richard Lewis? Yes. Do I remember, which is one of the weird things I remember, Charles Grodin okay. coming to the house. And that was a big thing. Like, he knew my parents enough that he didn't wear his toupee. Oh, you know wow. I mean? really relaxed, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we knew, you know, I knew Gary Shandling very well. Huh? The thing is, I got to see all these amazing comedians perform. In one sense, it's fantastic because I can see when I watch things, they're going to last. They're not going to last. Their energy is off. Yeah. Um, what I would see differently. The bad thing is, is 90% of the time I can see the joke coming down the track at me. Well, of course. Of course, you, you know, know. And, and and your mother was a master, master joke writer. Yes. She really in her voice. Yes. In her voice. Yeah. But it's, 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 and it has to be the same way for you. You, you see the setup, you see what's coming. Yeah. Yeah. I know they're going to go there. Yeah. Well, I, I drive my husband crazy because we'll be watching a show and I'll tell him the joke before it's set. Oh, how did you know that? Well, it's obvious. <laughs> oh, I, just, I go through that with all my friends all the time. I'm like, you didn't see that one coming. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, you know, and I can see every t- plot twist coming. It takes a lot for me to go, whoa, didn't see that coming. There have well, been a couple shows where I didn't see is, that. Curb can, that's the thing about Curb. You know, I mean, what what's always amazing to me about Larry is I read all the outlines and I have a comedian brain. Right. And I can't figure out how he got there because it's transcendent. And to me, transcendency is is what genius is. You know, that when you just can't see it, you know, I can't hear what Mozart heard. You, you know what I mean? Right. And with Larry, I'll read them. And it's just like, I didn't see that coming. I didn't He's see a, it. What a talented group of people. But at this point, what I think I saw in the last season, and I'm sure I'm going to see in this season, the relationships are so real that you know how the other person's going to react because you, the characters really do intrinsically know each other. Sure, sure. Which is such a special, but you know, I know to be on, or or my friends are going to react. That's what it is. Yeah. You know. How long did it take to get that level of comfort? Because nobody walks in the first day that comfortable. Yeah. Um, well, one thing is we all knew each other pretty well. I mean, I've known Jeff since the '90s, and I knew Larry since 1985, and so, and there was a level of. When you're improvising, there's got to be a level of trust. There was yeah. a level of trust and respect from day one. Um, yeah, it, I don't know how long it took. I mean, it, it didn't take that long because we were all stand-ups. So right. there's a certain, you know, we have our own language, stand-up comics. Like cops and prostitutes, we have our own <laughs> way to relate to each other in our own language and we understand one another. It's I, I, I met somebody recently a comic that I, I'm not going to name drop, but a very well-known comedian. And he mentioned a room he was going to go do. And I said, oh, high ceiling. And immediately he knew what I was, you know, it's like a certain thing. He immediately knew what I was talking about. There's like shorthand that we have uh, about comedy. So I think that it that was there from the beginning because we all trusted each other. And I think we all respected each other. And when you're improvising, that's what you need to do. Cheryl's the only one who was not a stand-up. But Cheryl came from the groundlings. Right. So she had the, the real had the improv, improv. train yeah. and has a comedian's brain in the way yeah. it sees the world. Right. Exactly. 
If you could relive one day on set, what would it be? God, that's a hard question. I would say from, I think it was season seven, the ski lift episode where I had to pretend to be Larry's orthodox wife. (laughs) We had so much fun that we have fun all, we laugh all day long. We laugh all day long. I've never seen a set like this. That's just so joyous and filled with laughter. I mean, it, I'm, I'm not being Pollyanna. It's not my way. Yeah, we no. We laugh all day long. I want to talk about your husband, who has yeah. nothing to do with the entertainment business. Oh, no, nothing. And never has. But you're the stepmother to four kids? Yes, and now I am Bubby. Oy. I have a granddaughter. Do you love it or do you oh, want to, like, it. kill yourself? I love it. I love it. She's not. She was nine months old two days ago. I love it. Oh, she's just a delicious. I hardly see her. I don't have to change her diaper. I don't do anything. I play with her for an hour and then she's gone. It's perfect. My mom said being a grandparent's the best because yeah. you can do everything that you weren't supposed to do as a parent. Also, being a parent, I mean, you're a parent. Yeah. And I am not. I was I just had this conversation this morning with a friend of mine. Uh, I, I I I raised my kids, so I was very, very involved in their lives and um the girls, especially it's one boy and three girls. And he was older. So, so the three girls I really raised and, and I love them to death. And I feel as though they're my kids. However, they don't take up the same amount of psychic energy in my head that your, that your son does for you or oh, for any of my friends. Yes, I still worry about them, but it's not the same level of that intensity that that a mother feels that that is so wonderful and horrifying at the same time oh i literally am tortured 90 percent of the day yeah i understand that it's one of the reasons i never wanted i never wanted kids really like no i never wanted kids i always felt like how do you put them on the bus when they're five (laughs) years old and you send them off to school i i couldn't i i'm so you know attached and anxious of a person that i couldn't imagine doing that well, what can we expect in this new season of Curb? You know, it's interesting. This new season of Curb, well, <laughs> my outfits are better than ever. Oh, you're, by the way, how much influence do you have in the fashion? I have. A, well, I created that look. I, oh, uh, that's my idea. It is so amazing. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to wear what I would never wear. You, right. you know, I don't want to dress like myself. Um, that's what people don't understand. It's like, is the character like, no, no. I'm with myself all day long. I don't want to be myself. I don't want to put on my own jeans and a <laughs> casual sweater. No. Oh. So I, I created that look. And when I first created it, the, in the first, I guess it was season two that I came, I came up with it. And, and our wardrobe designer at the time was like from the Midwest, you know. Didn't get and it at said, all. No. She said, where am I going to find these kinds of clothes? And I said, well, go to the back room of Lowman's. She had never heard of Lowman's. She didn't know what the hell it was, you know. So we went on a field trip and she was like, oh my God, look at this. And we kind of patched it together. But over the years, it's gotten better and better. And Leslie Schilling, who's been the wardrobe uh, designer for the past three years, she outdid herself this season. She oh. totally. So how it works is she buys the stuff and then we do fittings and I, you know, I say, this is fantastic. I don't like this. This looks whatever. We, it's collaborative. So, you know, when you know, when you put something on that it is in character. Correct. Correct. And, you know, a lot of times with Susie Green, one piece will be fine. You know, it's the combo. Oh, 
Absolutely, it's the combo. <laughs> Absolutely, it's the combo. So what? besides more fabulous Susie Green fashion, what can we expect? Uh, we have amazing guest stars. One of my favorite who has an arc, she's in four episodes, is Tracy Ullman. Oh, that's fantastic. And, oh, yeah. And working with her was she is so committed to her character with no vanity whatsoever and funny, funny, and just, she just becomes this character. I mean, it, it, she, I loved work and we have some funny stuff together, really funny stuff together. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on between Larry and I this season where we're kind of in cahoots with each other, which is not usual. No. The same side. Of course, I you know still get to tell him to get the fuck out of my house and yell and scream. But so that was kind of fun to explore. So that was a little bit different. It's it's a very complex season. One thing that's happened over the years is the outlines have gotten more and more dense, and the storylines have gotten more and more complex. So this is a very complex season. In episode one, a lot of storylines are laid out that by episode ten come full circle in a completely unexpected way. Well, we cannot wait. I cannot wait. Susie, you're the best. No, Melissa, you are. I'm no, so you are. You. <laughs> no, you are. No, you are. Thank you. Bye-bye.